0: Let us pray. Indeed, Jesus paid it all. And we come with great gratitude this morning. And For all eternity, we'll be singing the praises of what He has done for us and continues to do for us from His grace. And we commemorate that grace now in giving, not from a sense of compulsion, but from a sense of great gratitude. And we do this to the King of kings and Lord of lords. Even Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 24 and verse 25, our Lord commanded His disciples to keep on eating the bread and keep on partaking of the cup. They were to do that to remember Him. In verse 26, he also told them that they were to continue to keep on doing this, to remember him until he returns. Of course, the Lord didn't return during their lifetime, so we, as the body of Christ, the royal family of God, continue to do the same. We are obedient. We are here this morning. And we are going to partake of the bread and of the cup, as they did. But how can we remember the Lord? We have never seen Him. We've never heard Him. We have never talked to Him. And yet, we are commanded through these elements to remember Him. So how is it that we can remember someone we have never met and talked to? Remember the Lord through His Word. The more doctrine that you have, the more you have to remember the Lord. In fact, uh, in First Corinthians chapter 2, it says that we have the mind of Christ, and it's referring to the Word of God. So, the more the, of the Word of God that you have, the more you understand God's thinking, then the more we can remember Him. And that's what we're here as a unified body. Individually, we're concentrating this morning on these elements and what they mean to us and all the realm of doctrine, including Christology and soteriology and pneumatology, hermodiology, all the things that come into play when we think of Jesus Christ. We focus on that. So, we have Scripture that helps us understand that we can remember someone, we can know someone who we've not seen. John chapter 20, verse 29. Jesus said to him, he was speaking to Thomas, and he had a description. What did they know Thomas as? Doubting Thomas. So he was speaking to Thomas and he says, Because you have seen me, you believe. Blessed are those who did not see and yet believe. And it still goes today. You don't have to see Christ physically. You may wonder what he looks like his physical appearance or what he sounds like. What really is important is who he is. What is he about? About his integrity. About his essence, First Peter chapter one verse eight. Peter was saying, was saying to those who were scattered abroad, he said, "And though you have not seen him, you love him, and though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory." That's part of this communion service that we have this morning. It has to do with gratitude has to do with great thanksgiving for who Christ is and what He's done for us. Then in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, it says, For we walk by faith, not by sight. We don't have to have seen Him or even heard Him. We take it by that system of perception. We believe the Bible because of the evidence of the Bible. It's not a blind faith. One thing that we should appreciate as we partake of the Lord's Supper is that when God poured out our sins, indeed the sins of the whole world, on the Lord, then it means that He, God the Father, was propitiated with that sacrifice. That means He was satisfied with the work, the atoning sacrifice of Christ. That means that we can't, add anything to it. There's nothing left for us to do, because indeed it is, it is uh, finished work. A few scriptures that pertain to that. 1 John 2, 2. And He Himself, that would be Christ Jesus, is the propitiation, meaning He is the satisfi- satisfaction. He satisfied God. He's with, uh, for our sins and not for ours only, but also those of the whole world. So, Christ's atonement satisfied God's justice. Remember God's justice from last Sunday? One of his divine attributes? God does not compromise his justice, his righteousness for anyone. It's impossible for him to do that. And the only way that we could become saved and not go to the lake of fire is because Jesus Christ, God, became a man, the God-man, and went to the cross perfectly, no sin, in order to provide us with our so great salvation. 1 John 4, 9 and 10 says, with this, By this the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love. Not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His, his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Christ sacrificed His atonement satisfied God's justice. The barrier between God and man with regards to sin is removed. And then we have 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust so that he might bring us to God. Now what we're focusing on is the fact that Christ's atoning work was complete, it was perfect, it was total, and it was accepted by the justice of God. The barrier has been removed. And that means that The wages of sin is death, of course, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. Because it was a finished, completed atonement and was satisfied the justice of God, now we receive it as a gift simply by trusting it, trusting that God's Word is valid, it is true, and that by believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, then... What happens then is we are sanctified, we are justified, we receive eternal life, righteousness. Everything happens because of that. It comes as a gift. John chapter 3 verse 36. He who believes on the Son has eternal life. But he who does not believe on the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides upon him. Why does the wrath of God abide on a person? Because of their sins, because they didn't produce enough good, no. Because they do not believe. That's why it's completed. If people only would believe what Jesus said on the cross, in this following verse, when therefore, when when Jesus therefore had received the sour wine, he said, "It is." finished the job of taking care of our sin problem was completed when he said that and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit into my into thy hands i commit my spirit and he breathed his last now if people would believe that it would make a big difference there's even more scriptures that Emphasize the completeness of that sacrifice, and we find it in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 10. We have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all, and it means once and for all time for all. He only needed to go to the cross one time because that propitiated that sacrifice satisfied the justice of God. This was a unique sacrifice because Jesus Christ was the one who was making the sacrifice and he was the sacrifice. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 12. But he, meaning Christ, having offered one sacrifice for sins For all time sat down at the right hand of God. He sat down because his work was finished. Also, he sat down because he had a resurrection body. And we will have one that is likened to his someday. And then the final verse, Hebrews 10, chapter 14. For by one offering, he, that means Christ, offered himself as an atoning sacrifice on the cross that's in brackets, that's that's who He is, what He did, has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. Those who are sanctified are those who have believed the gospel. He has perfected them for all time. Are you believing the Lord Jesus Christ? If you are, then you have been perfected for all time. There is nothing that you can add to it. There's nothing you can take from it. This is part of what we are remembering about Christ and His sacrifice this morning. So many people really need to understand this and believe it. However, on February the 22nd of this year, Hundreds of millions of people across this country, across the land, across all worldwide, actually uh, started to observe the uh, what is known as Lent. So, uh, Wikipedia has a definition of Lent. It says it's the traditional. Uh, <clears throat> the traditional purpose of Lent is the penitential. Preparation of the believer through prayer, penance, repentance, almsgiving, and self-denial. It starts on Ash Wednesday, which derives its name from the practice of placing ashes on the forehead of adherents as a sign of mourning and repentance to God. The ashes used are typically gathered after the palms from the previous years, Palm Sunday are burned. We're not yet at Palm Sunday, but we are. I'm going to enlighten you a bit because uh, there's a lot of disinformation regarding that. Definition of penance, according to the World English Dictionary, penance is voluntary self punishment to atone for a sin. Now, I'm not trying to beat up on anyone, and I'm not trying to disparage any religions. I'm just trying to help you understand what we have in Jesus Christ and the fact that we have nothing at all left to do in order to be forgiven for our sins as believers other than confession. There's two ways that a person can receive forgiveness from God. As an unbeliever, you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and all the sins that you have committed are wiped clean. You are no longer uh, have that uh, barrier between you and God. And as a believer, post-salvation sins, there's only one way to have those sins forgiven, and that is to acknowledge them to God, period. First John 1, 9. If we acknowledge our sins to God, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, these people have a zeal for God. They want to be forgiven. But it's ignorance. And it's, it's unfortunate that so many people have uh, uh, bought on to the idea that Lent is pleasing to God. Actually, it is repugnant to God. Any, anything that anyone would do Any kind of sacrifice, self-denial, penance, anything is repugnant to God. It's a slap in the face of Jesus Christ which essentially alleges that what the Bible says and what He did was not enough. We still have to do something in order to be in God's good graces. And it's, it's a range of things. But anything other than believing in Jesus Christ as an unbeliever are acknowledging your sin as a believer will not bring forgiveness. I was somewhat surprised. I was reading this on the uh, website. This was Wikipedia, and it says that this event, along with its pious customs, are observed by Roman Catholics, Lutherans, Methodists, Presbyterians, Anglicans as well as some Baptists and Mennonites. Now, I don't know how accurate this is, but that was somewhat surprising to me. I do know that you know, we have hundreds of millions of people, I don't know what the number is, but huge masses of people that are living out their lives doing what probably their parents did or their friends did, and they feel comfortable because so many other people are doing it. But it's an error. It's an ignorance. And we need to realize that we don't have to do anything because it is a finished, completed act. And now we can have a relationship with God, relationship with Jesus Christ, because it was finished on the cross. Then it's not commanded nor practiced in the Bible. I think I have one more story deal here yeah here it is our point of contact with God is always grace it was grace as it began when we believed in Jesus Christ it's grace as we continue to stumble and falter and sin and we acknowledge our sin and are forgiven because God is faithful and just he will always forgive it and he's just in doing so because Christ has already paid for that sin What we're doing actually is acknowledging that the sin has been taken care of and being humble enough to acknowledge it. That's what it's all about. Anything else is really blasphemy. Everything depends on who and what he is, not on who and what we are. Always, that is the case. It's God that has to be glorified, not us. And I don't say this this morning necessarily for you to go out and start beating on these church doors and straighten these people out. But I do expect you to live your life in such a way and show such gratitude because you are grace-oriented and you know that you don't have to add anything to what Christ did on the cross. It should show in your attitude. It should show in what you say and what you do. The elements that we partake of this morning actually portray Jesus Christ. The unleavened bread represents His perfect, sinless humanity. I think it's interesting. We don't we don't have a big loaf here. We have little pieces. But back then, they didn't have the little pieces here. Uh, they would have to break the bread. I think it's too bad we don't have a big loaf and we tear a piece off for each person because that's what happened to Christ's body. It was broken for us. But what we do have that's so important with this bread is that it's unleavened. So that it speaks of no sin. And that's what Christ's body had to be. Perfect. If he had sinned one time, he would have been disqualified and God would not have been propitiated. He would not have been satisfied with the sacrifice. We have the cup which speaks to the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Nearly all the people that see the cross, think of the cross, they think of his torture by the brutal Roman soldiers and how he was stripped, he was beaten, he had the crown of thorns, He has you know, the spice goes through his hands and through his feet, and the agony, the physical agony of crucifixion was the most cruel probably of all time. And yet that is not what the cup is really referencing. What it is referencing is when God the Father poured out your sins and my sins upon Him. Just think how, how important justice must be to God in order to do that. Christ said, if there's any way, can you remove this cup? If there's any way other than this. But He said, not my will, but thy will be done. Because there was no other way. It had to be the Son of God in order to be crucified and sacrificed for us. This is the some of the things that we remember and we have gratitude for as we partake of the cup. You don't have to be a member of Country Bible Church to partake of these elements. If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, then you are part of the body of Christ, the universal body of Christ, and that means you are qualified. However, every one of us need to make sure that we partake of these elements in a reverent manner. In that same chapter, First Corinthians chapter 11, uh, right after uh, he had instructed the disciples, uh, he warned them. Some had been partaking of it. They were greedy. They would, wouldn't, didn't wait for others and they would eat more and, and take other people's food and it was irreverent. And because of it, some of them were sick. Some of them even uh, were put to sleep. They died to sin and to death. Now, this isn't to to, uh, make you afraid. It's just showing you the importance of what we do. This is a command straight from the Lord that has been passed down all these generations. So we're going to take a few moments of silent prayer to make sure that the decks are cleared, that there's no sin lurking around in your soul that needs to be confessed. So let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to be here to focus on our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, on that great sacrifice that was made on our our behalf. As we think of his body, we think of his life, and we think of how he received the sins of us, let us be thankful and have gratitude as we partake of this bread. We pray it in... His name, Amen. It is our custom to retain the bread until all have been served. He was wounded for our transgression. And bruised for our iniquities, chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripe we are healed our Lord Lord took the bread and he broke it on that occasion up in the upper room and he said he blessed the blessed it and said, "This is my body that is given for you take and eat thereof." Again, Father, we pause as we think of the great work, the sacrifice that our Lord made on our behalf. We pray that you will flood our soul with gratitude and the things that Christ did throughout his entire life in order to extend this unspeakable gift to us. We pray this in his name. Amen. It's our custom to retain the cup until all have been served. All we like sheep have gone astray, each one to his own way. He, God the Father, has laid upon Him, God the Son, the iniquity of us all. God demonstrated His love towards us, and yet while we were yet sinners, Christ died as a substitute, as a sacrifice for us. On that same occasion, our Lord took the cup. He said, this is the new covenant in my blood, Do this in remembrance of me. We will stand and sing hymn number 258, softly on the third verse, crescendo on the last verse. Let us stand as we sing. You may have noticed uh, in the bulletin that my sister went home to be with the Lord. Um, actually, it was uh, Friday morning, and uh, she was a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, and she was not afraid. In fact, she was looking forward to going home because uh, her body was just wore out, and she, they had called in hospice. Uh, Mimi and I and my daughter went up to see her last Thursday and that was the first day that hospice came in and about a week later uh, she went home. Uh, she was uh, she didn't want to be left out of the loop. The night before our uh, that, that she uh, went home the family went and picked out her casket and made arrangements and when they got back they were trying not to say where they had been and she didn't like that. She said, I don't want to be kept out of the loop. She said, I want to know what it looks like. I want to know what color it is. And so uh, it just is mindful again how short life is. And we have to remember what life is about. It's not about details. It's not about all the things and the fault or all that goes on in life. It's about our relationship with God. And are we going to be good and faithful servants? Or are we going to be a mediocre, get-by, take-the-easy-way type of Christians? I will uh, go to the funeral this Tuesday. And Bible class has already been called off. I was going to go to a conference, and I called it off for that. But God had other plans. So I'll be going to uh, Dallas um, on Tuesday and uh, Wednesday. Uh, there's going to be a graveside service here in uh, Houston. And that's where she's going to be buried. And I'm going to call off uh, Wednesday night uh, young people's class as well because I don't have any idea how long uh, that's going to be. So there won't be any Bible class Tuesday and no um, young people's class Wednesday, but we will uh, be right back at it uh, Thursday. We are in uh, part of scriptures in Joshua, where he mentioned rest, that he provided rest for the Israelites. And it was a temporary rest. They had conquered most of Canaan. But we went back to Hebrews chapter 4, and we saw that there's another kind of rest that Joshua did not provide for the Israelites. And that's the kind of rest that was offered by Moses to the first generation Israelites and they did not receive it. Even in David's time, it was still available. And we see in Hebrews chapter 4 as we studied that, that it is still available today. The rest is not a physical rest. Much more important, it's the rest in your soul. All the stress and tension and fears and worries and middle attitude sins that seem to plague us so easily can be shut down and you can go into that place of rest. We call it faith rest because you cannot go there unless you have faith in the Lord and what he has said and actually knowing what he said as well. That's where we have been. We went and a, a looked at a multitude of promises that we can claim. And then we thought, well, uh, we're going to go to the essence box. At least I decided to do that. The essence box is a great mechanic. It's a great method, a tool of calming your fears and having that security and stability that only God can give. Just focusing on who God is, what His essence is like, is enough to get you back concentrating on the solution, which is God, and get your focus off the problem, which we uh, tend to do. I'm going to put it on the board. I think. Okay. <clears throat> the first one we looked at was justice. God is just. That means he is fair. We we recognize that this morning already the how important justice is that he would not scrimp, he would not fudge He would not let anything other than the full measure and brunt of the punishment of our sins had to fall on Jesus Christ. That in itself should should suffice to us that He is just. I could even say maybe we should be propitiated by that. If God was propitiated and satisfied with Christ's work on the cross, demonstrating his justice, than we certainly should be. It's the quality of being just, righteous, righteousness, equitableness, or moral rightness. The moral principle determining just conduct, conduct to act or treat justly or fairly. When I think of being treated fairly, uh, so many people uh, want to be treated fairly by God. And, I don't know, I think about that, and I think, I really don't want to be treated fairly. If I got treated fairly, you wouldn't recognize me. I wouldn't even be here. I'd be a smudge out on Highway 290 somewhere, probably, or who knows. And I hope you will forgive me, but I have to tell a, a, a quick joke about this, because it illustrates it so well. I've said this once before. Maybe some of you have heard it, but it does illustrate the point. A woman went to a photographer and had pictures made. She's waited all of her life to uh, get these pictures, and she was going to hang them on the wall, and she looked at them. She immediately got in her car and went to the photographer's uh, place and confronted him, and she showed him the pictures. She says, I want my money back. He said, why? He said, uh, she said, these pictures don't do me justice. And he looked at the picture and he looked at her and he said, ma'am, you don't need justice, you need mercy. <laughs> That's what I need, I don't know about you. But our God would not be the great God that He is apart from His justice. He's always fair and the ultimate, the zenith, uh, that illustration is, of course, uh, putting all of our sins on Jesus Christ where they did not belong. Christ voluntarily took them. And we usually focus our attention upon how the, the great grace and love that it took for Jesus Christ to receive those sins. He's the ones that, He was the one that was suffering in a way that we can't even understand. And yet we kind of diminish or don't even think about the love and justice and righteousness it took for God to do that. So on both sides, it was uh, something that we should appreciate. In fact, we will uh, be uh, celebrating and showing our gratitude for all eternity. Because short of that, none of us could enter the gates of heaven. We went on to look at... um, God is always perfectly fair. It's impossible for Him to be unfair. And we went through these verses, and um, I don't know. I, I guess I'll go through some of them here. Psalm 19:9. 9, the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. Psalm 36, 6, Thy righteousness is like the mountains of God. When you think of a mountain, what do you think of? Been to Colorado before? These big, huge, majestic mountains that cannot be moved. They're just massive. And that's how it is illustrating God's righteousness. And Thy judgments are like the great deep. I've only been uh, out in the ocean, uh, I guess the Gulf. The Gulf is the ocean to me, a few times. Uh, not uh, I guess it was, what, a couple of years ago. I went on a cruise with others from here uh, in the Caribbean and just crossing the Gulf of Mexico that looks like this little bitty pond on a map is massive I mean it looks like the ocean me. and when I think about the deep I think about when we were out there on this cruise ship and it was a big cruise ship but when you're out there in this mass of water it's like a little bitty dot in the massiveness of the oceans this is what the psalmist is comparing his judgments to Psalm 89:14, Righteous, Righteousness and justice are the foundation of thy throne. Loving-kindness and truth go before thee." Now we talk about integrity. Integrity means being whole, not lacking anything. And when we talk about the essence of God, we're really talking about His integrity. And it, is, it says that his foundation, the foundation of His very integrity, is based on His justice and his righteousness. And we recognize that what the righteousness of God demands, the justice of God executes. If it's blessing, it's the, if, if the righteousness requires blessings, the justice will carry that out. If it's if it's cursing, if it's punishment, then the judgment, justice of God will carry that out as well. I think this is especially important to those who are universalist. Remember in getting the gospel right. We looked at many of these uh, false ideas and and, uh, theologies, and one of them is that everybody is going to go to heaven. Well, if everybody is going to go to heaven, believers as well as unbelievers, then God is not just. They rejected the free gift of salvation. You know, God doesn't really, He doesn't desire any to perish, but would have all to be saved. And so when someone rejects that offer, of eternal life through faith alone in Christ alone, they're sending themselves to the lake of fire because God did everything imaginable, the hardest thing, in order to offer them eternal life. And he can't be soft-hearted. As much as he loves unbelievers, his justice still must act. And universalism is a lie because anyone who... Denies uh, if they die denying Jesus Christ and the gospel, then they'll spend the lake of their eternity in the lake of fire because that's what the Bible says, and that is the just, the justice of God working. Deuteronomy 32:4, the Rock, His work is perfect, for all His ways are just. a God of faithfulness and without injustice, righteous and upright is He. Revelation 16:7 and I heard the altar saying, "Yes, O Lord. O Lord God, the Almighty, almighty true, and righteous are thy judgments." These are just a thimbleful of the verses that I could put up here that talk about God's justice. And we need to recognize, we ought to be so happy that he is just because if he wasn't just, he wouldn't be God, and we couldn't depend upon. him. If he wasn't just, none of his other attributes would really have that much bearing because he would be unfair. We went through, uh, what about the heathen? We went through this. I'm not going to do this again today. Um, they suppress the truth. The, the heathen, uh, the, the question are the heathens, those that have not received the gospel, uh, what's going to happen to them? Is God going to give them a pass? No. They're responsible because they can tell by the creation According to Romans chapter 1, I think it's around verse 18, right in there, that it talks about uh, they can tell all the things about God, they can tell about his, his uh, essence, his majestic uh, qualities, by what was made, by the creation itself. And it says, therefore, they are without excuse. And if they don't want, if they see all of his creation, and they don't want to have a relationship with him. If they want to buy into Satan's lies, then they're welcome to do it, but his justice will act. They will be at the great white throne because they had no inclination. They didn't want to have a relationship with God. It was their choice, and his justice still acts. This is what uh, all this was. I just encapsulated that. That's what all this was about. The next one is his righteousness. It's the quality or state of being just or right, or rightful. It is characterized by or proceeding from or in accordance with the accepted standards of morality, justice, or uprightness. By the way, and and virtuous. By the way, what is morality? I mean, that is different things at different places on the globe, isn't it? I mean, in our country, if you have more than one wife, you've broken the law. It's either bigamy or polygamy, and we don't accept that. That We would say that is immoral. But if you go to one of the Arab countries, Saudi Arabia, or many of these others, uh, you can have two or three, maybe four wives. So how can we know for sure what morality is? It's in here, isn't it? This is better than, what, it was, what was that Italian sauce? Was it ragu? Was that it? It's in there. What about tomatoes? It's in there. How about onions? It's in there. What about garlic? It's in there. It's the same thing here. Anytime we want to go to the bottom line as to what is righteous, we go to this book and it will tell us. And it tells us that polygamy is a sin. It's not pleasing to God. And I know some of you said, yeah, but what about David and what about Solomon? What did Solomon ever breaking? <laughs> 700 wives. 300 concubines. Well, we'll just... And he was the wisest man on earth. You know what happened, don't you? Uh, God, part of the Mosaic Law was that the Israelites were forbidden to marry foreign women. Because if they did, he knew that they would turn their head away from God into their heathen worship. And that's exactly what happened to uh, Solomon. Uh, somebody, some gorgeous babe, you know, I can't do it, but they, you know, that, the, eye, the eyelashes caught his attention, and the next thing you know, he's the goner. He said, Well, that works so good, I think I'll do it again. And he did it about a thousand more times. But the point is, What we think is right, what we think is moral, what we think is just, really is from a very relative standpoint. We want to know the bottom line. We want to know that the absolute truth. And see, that's why so many people today are into postmodernism. Postmodernism is, well, everything is relative. You can't know anything for sure. Huh. Well, how do you know what's right and wrong then? It's all from the. From the standpoint of the viewer, when they, when a post, and there are people who are into postmodernism that go to all these different religions and churches, and when they read the scripture, they can read the same scripture that we are. Only they take it; their interpretation is not from the author's position, but from how they feel about it. That's what postmodernism is. And so we have a lot of people today that don't know what the absolute standards of righteousness are. And when a group like us, of course, we don't go out in a group like this. It would be much easier if we did. I think we'd have maybe more clout. But when we're out and about and somebody, some issue comes up and we say, bam, we say something dogmatically, I mean authoritatively. People kind of gasp when they look, but we're not used to somebody saying something like that. Well, why not? Well, I mean, that's just your—that's just your your opinion. No, that's God's opinion, and He's the one that counts. And then, what are they going to do? They're going to make the issue of the Bible, whether it's credible or not? Are they going to say, "Oh, that's just your interpretation." They have their sight very slippery. They don't want to recognize that God is always right and it's in His word. You want to argue with me about God's righteousness? How about it? You're really not arguing with me. If I've got it correct, if I'm standing on a doctrine that I understand, you're, really, you're arguing with God. You want to box with God? I don't think you got long enough arms. You know, it's not—it's not a—it's not, um, not an arrogance to be dogmatic about God's righteousness. You know, we want to be right. We have the ability to be right because we have God's word. We have the discerning ministry of the Holy Spirit that will help us understand these things. And we live in a very oh, wishy-washy world it just makes me want to fight something you know do something that's real hang on to something everything is relative for kids these days boy when i was growing up i, I was taught right and wrong there was no wishy washiness about it and if i wanted to haggle about it i just got deeper in debt and that was <laughs> that was demonstrated to me very vividly. But today's little darlings, you might hurt their self-esteem. It's not their self-esteem that needs to be hurt; it's a little lower. Well, I digress. Uh, isn't it great to know that God is always right? Don't we all? Don't you want to go to someone? And ha- that has the last word. God has the last word because he is always right. It is impossible for him to be wrong. I don't know what we have here. We have a few verses here. So God's righteousness is not relative. He is absolutely righteous in all things at all times. Always perfectly right in all that he does. Everything that he says is perfectly right. Why do we focus on The Bible. Because it is immutable. It is inerrant. It is plenary. means it covers everything that's necessary. And it's alive and powerful. We need to use it. We need to learn it. We need to use it. Because God expects us to be righteous as well. Now, we'll never be as righteous as God is righteous, even though I've met a few people who thought they were. You may have also. You know, that's the ones that are kind of like, like this. They can't even get down on this level because they're so self self righteous. You want to compare our righteousness to God's? We're a bunch of slug slimes about all we are. But we have His righteousness, don't we? God sees us through the cross. And we are perfect. Remember that verse and we, we looked at in Hebrews? That He has made us perfect for all time. God gave us what we could not come up with, and that is His own righteousness. Can you improve on that? Boy, all these people that are out there doing all these rituals and liturgies, and they're doing things that they just grit their teeth and they try to do it. The good news is, hey, won't you just shut that all down? Won't you just trust God? If you believe in Jesus Christ, you're going to get what you're working for, and it's free, and you have it forever. You can't lose it, and you don't have to worry about self-sacrifice anymore. Isn't that good news? Well, I've done gone to preaching them over time. I'd like everyone to please bow your heads now. Last portion is for someone who may be here that isn't all that sure about... Jesus Christ or whether they're going to heaven or not. The good news is that our point of reference with God is grace. You believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, that he's the son of God. He went to the cross, he died, was buried, resurrected, and now he offers eternal life to you. You can have it in a moment right now. And your ticket to heaven is guaranteed. You become a royal family member. You don't earn it or deserve it. That's what grace is all about. And you don't have to try to be good enough anymore. All you have to do is be thankful for how good our God is. So, Father, we pray that you will help us have the proper gratitude for all you've done for us. And for those who have been struggling, trying to be good enough, that they'll understand they have to be perfect. And only Jesus Christ was perfect. Faith alone in Him will get them what they could never work for for themselves, and that is your own righteousness. We thank you for this time of fellowship in your Word, remembering Jesus Christ in this special way this morning. We pray that we will carry this with us, for we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.